This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by It Came From The Deep, our brand new narrative podcast with an after show based on Maria Lewis, that's right, host of Josie and the Podcats, book It Came From The Deep. It's part of her Supernatural Sisters series, which is still ongoing and it is terrific. It is my favorite book out of that entire lot. And that on a brand new feed is an audio book of the entire novel, It Came From The Deep, for free and a special post-chapter after show. A chapter comes out once a week, an after show comes out and follows it. We discuss all the themes, the writing process with Maria and have some guests on to talk about it. I am very often in the co-hosting chair and also producing. Uh, you have to listen to it. So if you love what we do at One Heat Minute Productions, you uh, I would love if you could check it out. One Heat Minute Productions is sort of expanding and doing sorts of new things. And it came from the deep. The narrative podcast of an after show is something that we're really proud of. So uh, definitely check it out. But now... If you like our movie Deep Dives, here we are with all the President's Minutes. Um, I think certain sides have given a lot, you know, and I think the question is how much more do we need to give? You know, I always say this, unity is great, but freedom is better. And there's a part of this population that has sacrificed their freedom time and time again for unity. And they're tired of it. Yes, we want to have compromise. Yes, we want bipartisanship. But it shouldn't cost people wages and health care and education. And so if you're asking us to come together, and that means that my world doesn't change, the people whose world needs to change doesn't change, I don't want that kind of unity. I want the kind of unity that leads to change for people who have waited for it. And if this pandemic hasn't showed us that we need to serve people, first and that needs to be a unifying message the republicans need to be on board with actually taking care of people if we can unify around that i'm all for it but if that means that we're going to compromise and we're going to continue to serve the one percent the people who we have always served that's not the kind of unity we need right now ladies and gentlemen welcome to all the president's minutes i'm your host blake howard joining me is really a, a member of the Sydney film community and someone i would have absolutely had on the show and someone who i saw so damn frequently so often in and around the whole community of like Sydney film. But in case you might've noticed, it has been 2020. There have been fires that have burned large majorities of our country down, a pandemic that has crippled the, you know, the international and our national economies. Um, things being closed down regularly, lockdowns, all those things. Um, We've got some exultant, beautiful moments, uh, you know, in the international calendar. For example, the ousting of Donald Trump and the actual finally <laughs> claiming victory election speeches of Joe Biden and his uh, VP Kamala Harris. But this guy is someone who would, if I had, if the Sydney film community had operated as it would, I would have seen him every week, sometimes every multiple week. times. And if I'd seen him, he would have already been on the show. So it was like one of my big uh, travesties to have not already had him on the show. And that is how I'm going to introduce him. He's the host of the film Fight Club. You would probably hear him if you're in Australia, um, a little bit on ABC Radio. He also writes about theatre um, uh, as well. So you would find him at Arts Hub uh, doing that. And he's just a freelancing film critic. He's a great member of the community. He was such a great supporter, especially at the end of One Heat Minute, getting me on their great show, Film Fight Club, to talk through all things heat. And uh, it would feel incomplete without him. Glenn Falconstein, welcome to All the President's Minutes, my friend. It's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for such a kind introduction. And you're absolutely right. It's, there's a wonderful film community. It's nice seeing everyone on Twitter in a way. It's nice chatting now. 
over the phone, over Zoom. We had all these Zoom watches, but I miss the weekly screenings. I miss this being at a film festival, sitting at a pub and, oh, everyone's here. It's going to be when we can, and hopefully it's very soon, getting back to that spirit, getting to see everyone. And, oh, it's you. It's, it's like we haven't really haven't missed each other because we've always been in regular contact. But <laughs> it, it will be really, really nice. It will be nice. And also, like, there's kind of... There is the slog of uh, regular freelance critics such as Glenn who like have to go week on week. And I've kind of like, I was part of that gang and I've seen sort of, I'm in and out now. I'm not as much of the regular community in that way. But Sydney Film Festival was one particular thing that is missing and where you could, in, you could be guaranteed at least some variety of voices, both locally and internationally. And just seeing some things that might excite you, some things that you might have heard about. And that's one big yawning gap I think that's been in the calendar for all of us. And you're absolutely absolutely right what i would give right now for like a post big parasite screening drinks with uh, a whole bunch of the gang at sydney film festival whew, it would be just uh, a miracle a miracle if we can we can have a gathering of 20 i reckon we just get a bunch of gin because it's all they serve there sit in the town hall steps call everyone and talk if they kick us out they kick us out they always kick us out at 12 anyway but that was the dream people would rock up from all over the country we got to see our melbourne friends and we oh. otherwise can get in Queenslanders. Yes. I actually been seeing a lot more of my Melbourne mates lately on who know over Twitter just because of Zoom watches and Zoom weekly Zoom chats and trivias. But it would be nice to see them in person, whether it's Sydney Film Festival next year or whichever screening or just randomly. Hey, big premieres happening. Come on up. And listen, we can say it now, besides the fact of being in the community, you are the first official person that I've spoken to since the end of the American election where it is actually, there is actually a result of obviously Donald Trump is um, a guy who is in the process of being ousted is executing lawsuits and contesting some counties, regions of the country of, of, you know, accusing them of electoral fraud. Some of them are, you know, completely off the wall and some of them have a basis at least in fact and potential legitimacy. So everything has to be exhaustively done at this point. It feels like it's, it feels like the, you're arguing about the score when you've been KO'd completely and carried out in an ambulance and then the people wake you up in the hospital to tell you that you lost the fight and you bitch about the scorecards. That's kind of what it feels like. But Glenn, uh, it's, this show is going to take a really dark turn, I feel like, if Trump was re-elected because I think people would have said, Blake, this movie's a lie. Democracy's a lie. The intent of journalism to push back against politics and hold them to account for things and all of their rhetoric and their propaganda is, is a lie. This movie is a fantasy. Um, but it feels now in the last few hours, me getting excited to talk to you for this project. I'm like, you know what? Today's a pretty good day. I was so glad it was scheduled for tonight. I wasn't sure when we were <laughs> going to get a result, exactly what it was going to be. I woke up this morning to messages from my American friends, just so happy. A lot of my family are American. In fact, oh. more than half of them are. And they live in Georgia. They live in Pennsylvania. I oh. know they're just a bit happier now. There was a happy mood on the street, just walking around. Everyone's just chatting. Yeah, we finally sorted this out. It was tempted a little bit. I know people are a little worried that Trump actually hasn't conceded. Uh, it's a very rare occurrence where there's a, a victory speech with out of concession and without that phone call or messenger pigeon and pigeon as it was back in the day. <laughs> but all every indication is that he hasn't, isn't happy with the outcome, isn't happy with the ballots and mail-ins as it's all been said. And I hope that as much as can be, there is a sweet transition of power, but just to watch Harris speak 
and then introduce Biden. It was a special moment. I had it uh, playing on walking down Marrickville Road just um, on my phone. And a couple of people were like, oh, the speech is happening now. A couple of people tuned to watch it a little bit. There's a feeling of fair relief, I think, of not just the past four years, but the past four days where I was expecting a result on Wednesday. I got up with my friends. We all watched it together. We just weren't sure how's this going to turn out. We kept waiting. No, it was they to call Wisconsin by a 10. We were like, no, no. <laughs> We're, we're going to Lord Nelson. They're not calling this tonight, but it seems uh, all the networks, Biden team, they've called it now. It's what's hilarious is, and I know that you experienced this too, because we're both in, in Sydney is there's a great little window of the day where all of our international often American friends are all online at the same time as Sydney and Melbourne film critics. And it's kind of like, I want to say it's from like 10 till about four. There's kind of a window, a flowing window and what was happening. And it's kind of hilarious and tragic and like just part of the nail biting quality of this election and just how enrapturing it was. There was no point that we all weren't online together, which meant that no one was sleeping meant that you know, it was just no one was sleeping. If you did sleep, it was for a few hours. You got up like every time I wake up, I've got two little kids. Every time I wake up, whether it's me going to the bathroom or I hear a cry or whatever, like I was reflexively, you know, the screen time was just outlandish, but like you just go to your phone and quickly check, is anything happening? No, nothing's happening. Okay, cool. Um, or, or someone's announcing it, but they're the only person and I will wait. Um, but yeah, look, it's look again, it's going to be a fascinating time. Of course. Um, of course he's going to contest it. It's his personality. Um, it's, it feels self-evident to me that he would be doing this. And it's just like how, you know, I, I, it's even more, um, it's so predictable. It's just like, okay, well then now they've just got to work through what that is. And, um, and I, I don't know about you, but like when you're scrolling through all the stuff around the election, um, I found uh, John McCain's concession speech from 2008 and I watched it and I remember thinking, Oh my goodness. What a great man. Like, like whatever you thought about him as an individual going against Obama or whatever, what a, what, what an inversion of what you have come to think of conservative Americans. This is a guy who was like, they ran a great campaign. This is a great country. You know, you know, he, I I deeply respect him. I congratulate him. I think he's going to do a great job. Like I don't want booze. I don't want you to boo him. I'm proud of what you've done. And it was just like, Whoa, like this is never going to happen. You know, not in the Trumpian landscape. It's not going to happen. But yeah, it's a an interesting time, my friend. I remember John McCain's speech. It was at a, a event in 08 during uni. And I remember it was of such quiet dignity, like in that town hall meeting where he grabbed the mic from someone who said a, um, something about a, a president, of Obama, president Obama that wasn't true. I was seen a bit of George H.W. Bush's concession speech. I was too young to watch that live. It was, my, it was my earliest political memory, Clinton being elected, but I don't remember that speech. Um, I've always admired, I remember reading Adlai Stevenson's concession speech from 56, the second time he ran against Eisenhower. And it's a beautiful one. It's one page. It's very brief. It's just, I congratulate the president. We give him our full support. And McCain had a similar rhetoric, but in such detail. And I noticed the similar sort of rhetoric that Biden had today when he reached out to Trump supporters and says, I am the president for everyone. There's no red and blue states. Harris obviously promoted similar rhetoric. I think for so long, it was just taken for granted that you would have these concession speeches, which were magnanimous, that we took it for granted. And now I think we know we can't. And I'm glad that at least on the Democratic side, we've seen this election. We saw Biden and Harris's speeches. There is a move to unify the country. I'm sorry, McCain. Um, wasn't around to see this. I think he would have some very strong perspectives on. I know he clashed with Trump 
quite uh. strongly. I know a lot of Republicans have actually come out and said, yep, congratulations, Biden. I hope more will. I'm not sure if they will, though. Yeah, it's just one of those things where you just wonder, um, maybe it's me having watched too many movies about gangsters and mafia, but there's just one fundamental thing that I approach all politics with is qui bono, right? Who benefits? It's a great qui bono, who benefits? Like who is the beneficiary of their mag magnanimous attitude? And you, I think you'll just see people fall in line. If they feel like the sentiment is there and they feel like they're beaten, they will do it. If they feel like they've still got a moment, like something to gra grab onto, or they're out on this Trump Island and they'll go to death as a, as sort of like this strange cultish following. Um, and it's not all Republicans because they're all races that are being run. Like obviously there are people in the different States who are running and they they feel like they're being valued by their own Republican beliefs and values, you know, you know, Christian leaning, et cetera. Um, uh, and especially on big things like abortion and things like that, there are some real, great divides between both and choice. And I think the parties can exploit them, but at the end of the day, yeah, it feels like now it's, I think if we were recording this in the day, there'd be way more Republicans that have said, yeah, congratulations. Cause like it's done. The ship has sailed. Like it feels like the whole country ship had sailed. It feels like every media outlet in the world, there's people dancing in the damn streets. Scott Morrison, everyone's congratulating him. Everyone's All the country's saying, well done. Yeah. Well done. Well done. And so, yeah, I think there's a, <laughs> and I even saw an American friend of the show, Walter Chaw, um, retweeted uh, Dave Meadows, who's actually a, um, a, a Sunday Telegraph features writer um, around the place. He's, he was in a bar in Wollongong. And strangely enough, which is about an hour, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a like a, a steel town south of Sydney, about an hour south of Sydney for most people. Um, I was actually down the south coast because my family have um, a little a little home away from home down there. And I was down the south coast and he was in a bar in Wollongong and they had US election specials. And some of them read, fuck Trump and his stupid fucking wall shot for $12. Fuck Trump and his stupid fucking Proud Boys, $17. And it was I'm just like... And it was just like, it just, I mean, all that, all that stuff, right? We can go into some of that as we progress. But it was just funny that like, in, well, even in Wollongong, a steel town, I mean, broadly like working class. So, you know, I think the Democrats would hope that they'd be broadly democratic, but absolutely not necessarily the case if they're more conservative values. Lots of elder white people live down there. And, you know, um, I think they started calling them, they coined the phrase the quiet Australians for a lot of those conservative Australians who've really sort of, rigid conservative values that you know maybe turning up down there and being broadly nationalistic and yet in a pub there's a whole bunch of u.s election specials that wear its politics on their sleeve so it's uh it permeates everywhere it's it's an interesting thing no i i believe it i think most australians conservative or not, i consider myself a traditional religious person um see that trump isn't someone who actually promotes these values and pursues 100%, these values 100 um I was at, there's a the Botany View Hotel on the corner of St. Peter's in Newtown. Um, I know one it. class club. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Um, captures every demographic in Newtown. Just today, a local artist, Scotty Marsh, did a beautiful mural, the Anderson Cooper quote. And it's actually <laughs> Trump as a turtle on his back, flailing about. And I think that's how most people feel about it. It just looks pathetic. I think he, I think he has this moment now where if he wants his legacy to remain intact, if he wants to be a hero to the people who've supported him, he, and I'm pretty sure people are saying this to him in the White House, 
go quietly, go with as much dignity as you can because he's got to go now. If he keeps drawing it out, he's going to look desperate. He's going to look petty. He's going to look weak. And so, and those are factors that have always played against him. Those are things he's always avoided. He's, his cachet is being the strong man. And already, I think this is counting against him by people who support him, but no, mate, you lost. It's over. <laughs> take the example of those who've come before i know only eight sitting u.s presidents have ever lost yeah it's rough but i think i think i do think he had it coming even if he doesn't see it that way but he needs to go with quite a hope that time this is released and um and certainly in the coming days that we see him give very clear examples of that because right now all he's saying is i won the election i got the most votes of any sitting president which is true but biden got and harris got three million more which counts a lot more yeah, it's a, it's, that's a lovely bit of spin. Um, and just because, I have to say this, Len, just because we are sitting now and approaching a minute where there was political malfeasance and, there, and, the, and the, result, um, uh, the resulting exit of Richard Nixon being pardoned by his successor so that he couldn't stand trial, which is still something that deeply, uh, you know, a deep gripe, a deep cut for Americans, because so many of the culture that was, you know, the Nixon White House culture and all those people who were culpable ultimately sat before Senate and were charged and did do prison time or had deferred sentences and lost jobs and were ousted out of the business and, you know, all that sort of thing. The business of politics probably is better for me to say in that, in that respect, but that's something I've been hearing a few times of like, there's been that conspiracy, not, it's not even a conspiracy theory. It is a, it is a potential political tactic of Trump actually resigning the presidency prior to leaving and being proactively pardoned by Mike Pence, who would inherit the presidency of the United States for X amount of months until it's over. And then thus galvanizing himself from future prosecution. And I heard that and I thought, I thought it was ridiculous hearing it and I don't often like entertain conspiracy theories because I think at the moment it's just so a lot of it's ludicrous, but I do go, you know what? That is a guy. He's quite a litigious man, shall we say, Mr. Trump. And if he was worried about potential future indictments, because there's like, I don't know, from what I've heard and read hundreds of pending indictments, both at a local, particularly at a state level and, and a personal level, his businesses, I just wonder if he could do that just to try and hedge some of his bets of, you know, smooth sailing on the, uh, on the outside. It's been where well, we had, he was only the third U S president ever impeached. I wonder how he, he, the sort of scandal, if he had conducted something like we see in the film, we had to talk about play out, how it would play out today, how people would react, um, how he would, to what extent he would admit or negate or just dismiss culpability. I, I'm not a fan of Pence, by far, I love the shot that Sacha Baron Cohen, the many shots Sacha Baron Cohen took in his <laughs> recent movie, were very well deserved. Um, I, however, have always found him quite deliberate. I think that Pence is old enough, like uh, most Americans, to remember that when Ford pardoned Nixon, it felt like not just for the naysayers, but for the faithful, a great loss of faith and that he needed to stand trial. He needed to be accountable. And it was one of the reasons that he lost the Carter. Yeah. I think if something like this were to happen and Pence were to make a go of it in 2024, 2028, I think most Americans will not forget it. I think he knows that. I think he knows it will count against him. So I hope I'm not wrong, but I don't see him doing something like that. But then again, uh, the amount of things I've just 
put past and then seen transpire over the past four years today the, the amazing story of rudy giuliani getting the four seasons hotel mixed up with four seasons landscaping oh my god um, this insane, and then just going ahead with this press conference president trump tweeting about this local business who have um who have uh just like yeah you can have your press conference about the election <laughs> mr president outside our landscaping business in the middle of philadelphia sure some of the so, fu- some of the funniest internet content today just even there was an aussie comedian I'll, 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 i'm gonna go see if i can find that in my twitter feed really quickly so i can credit but just like people doing pretending to be that person on the phone actually here it yep. is it is um Natalie Tran, um, an Aussie uh, professional F1 driver who who actually just like was pretending to be on a phone call and said something to the effect of like, oh, my work's so boring. Like nothing ever good happens here. Oh, sorry. I got a work call. One second. Four seasons total landscaping. And it's just hilarious. Like it's absolutely outstanding. Um, it's, I mean... <sighs> Incredible. I, I love, apparently the Instagram bio now reads... Um, it's a women, it's minority run, prominently women's business. Their slogan is now make America green again, which they should stick with because <laughs> like, you, you've got landscapers, you've got business for life now. Good for you. Take advantage keep it, of this opportunity keep it, to by the horns. Keep, keep it. You, for right now, they, they are trending internationally. So go nuts, like do it. And even for a laugh, I think people would do it. Would do it. Let's, let's now talk because if it's not already evident in the way that people, you know, we've already been speaking, um, you're a politically engaged guy. And, you know, that was again, why in my introduction, I was like, it just felt like a bit of a, and I'm going to say this to some of the guests, a bit of a brain fart from me between now and the end of the show, not to have had you on already. So it's great that we're talking about it now because it's a, it's a great moment of the film to talk about, but could you just, you know, tell the listeners of the show a little bit about your relationship with the movie that you've had so far and, and it, because we haven't talked as much about this era. We've talked about muscular uh, existential action movies and men uh, therein um, before in much more very, detail. Very different. No, well, no, the Trump is a strong man. He's like a big, uh, big man. So this is definitely in theme. No, no, no. Sort of, sort of. Uh, but tell me, tell me your relationship with all the president's minutes. So I first saw the film and read the book uh, back, I first saw the film in high school. I read the book when I got to uni. I loved it. I saw the film again. I haven't revisited it in uh, about the better part of 10 years. I revisited it now. I last watched it shortly before I moved to DC. I decided to live... I, the West Wing is my all-time favorite television <laughs> show. So I decided live my West Wing fantasies. I lived in DC for six months. I finished my degree there. Um, I got a, a hangout in Congress. I actually had forgotten about it because I hadn't seen the film since I watched since I lived in DC. But... I the scene where they pan up the bit that's parried in, the, in Miss Lisa Goes to Washington and the Simpsons where they pan upward and they're looking at that circle. I don't know if I was in the exact seat, but I was sitting in that cove. Cool, when, Library um, Congress. Library Congress. It was, it was my local library. I, I lived in Dupont, and and harking back to an issue you raised earlier, I'll never forget the librarian come. What are the librarians come up to me and saying? Excuse me, Sarah. This look of just this pained expression on their face. I'm so sorry. The library has to close. Like, oh, I'm sorry. What? Congress is shutting down because of a debate over abortion funding, and I was kicked out of the local library. <laughs> so I. But, um, but back to your original question. I I I got to see a lot of the sites that I saw in this film 
from the film, from the book, um, in real life, I went to the Watergate because, of course, I went to the Watergate um, since I'm around the White House. And just to see a few locations just casually depicted, obviously, the Washington Post, Space Law in Washington, just see my old streets. So it was a bit of a trip down memory lane, but also just something I could fondly revisit in that. I've also seen the influences of this film on so many we've seen recently. I'm sure you talked about Spotlight, um, The Pelican mm. Brief. Um, actually, my favorite Grisha meditation with the shades of it. Um, obviously, there's a many of the films Redford has made over the years, it's been so absurdly influential. The Post, a film I am have mixed views on. Um, certainly, I think this is a much higher example of this form of storytelling and narrative. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can see... Um... You can see Steven Spielberg, you know, I've been really lucky. got to speak to Liz Hanna who wrote the post on the show. Um, and, you know, she, she talked about when she wrote this, how kindly and generously Steven Spielberg spoke about Alan Bakula and spoke about this film and the idea that he could play in the wheelhouse and the universe of this movie for him was like an important thing. And, and, and he, he spoke about him with reverence. And so I think that that's a, um, you can see the attraction, you know, this time in Washington, this time in America, uh, it, it was a fascinating and turbulent time. And I think in maybe 20 years, you know, when people look back, they're going to go, oh, look, the fodder of 2020 to turn into any number of different things is going to be the thing. And, and for those of us who like literally are living through it right now and talking about it right now and unpacking it and kind of like going, man, what's it like to live in a turbulent time in history? Like where lots of things are happening or there's a war or there's some kind of conflict or a pandemic. We're living through it right now. So it's, it's, it's going to be really interesting, but I, yeah, I can see, I can see that. And this movie's clockwork efficiency, you know, you talk about um, your favorite show of all time. One of your favorite things of all time being the West Wing, you know, Mr. Aaron Sorkin talks so, uh, he gushes about this movie because he gushes about Bill Goldman, uh, who was a mentor of his. And, and I just think that, you know, you don't get the kind of clockwork precision of something like the West wing without the influence of like all the president's men, because it just has that same cadence, the, the frenetic pace. And even the minute that we're about to watch the 119th, it's like, that could be a scene from the West wing because it is just, a, it is just, a mess of personalities, a mess of things happening, a mess of opinions, people running to get things, no decisions being made, all the voices being taken in and, you know, then, you know, Bradley just pacing and, and sort of getting the opinions and, and then barking the orders about what he needs or not really even barking. He doesn't have to be barely has to whimper to raise his voice. He's just like, this is what's happening. And the guys are got to do what they do. It's, 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 it's all there. And it's so cool. I, I wasn't actually aware that you lived in Washington for six months, but that is awesome. Oh, I had a great time. Yeah, I was there during the Obama's first term. You'd just see people from all over the world, foreign ministers, rock up. We have a meeting at the White House, got to spend an extra week here. I'm going to move about. They spent all the time around K Street. And I think, yes, I loved spending time in DC because I lived in a bit of a bubble. We talk about how to what extent America is divided now. In DC, everyone's politically engaged, Democratic, Republican, but everyone by consequence of their political roles has to and does work together. I know it's very different when you move a little bit more throughout other sections of the country. And certainly there are exceptions within different parts and different segments of um, the DC community. Um, I definitely think that anyone who goes to live in DC has seen this movie. The spirit of it lives on on the streets. It lives on in the West Wing. I'm certainly just watching it back today. I got a bit of a Lyman McGarry vibe from Woodward and 
Bradley, where you know, this young upstart, um, he wants to do well. He said, like, no, we've got to go. We've got to go. And the more considered, no, 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 we want to do this. We're not trying to get away with something. We want to make sure we do something right. We want to make sure, not just that it's above board, that, but that we will be reflected well. Fair enough. Um, there's something there were many great scenes of the West Wing where you just have Toby and Sam and Josh and CJ and Ainsley and whomever just sitting, working away at something, being studious. It's not something you see depicted in a lot of films or television lately where it has to be all these flashy moments. And I loved the first, well, I know the minute we're going to talk about is a very impactful <laughs> and very frenetic minute. I actually loved the first two hours of this film where, and, and the last couple of minutes where we just see them quietly working away um, like the first couple of hours of Spotlight, which is why I absolutely adore that movie, where there's an emphasis on um, diligence, which is not yeah. something you see depicted because it's not something that's seen as proactive or kinetic, but it is. I think anyone can get, you still engage with it. Oh, look, uh, procedure porn is something I talk about with all my friends. I'm just, I'd love watching people do things and be diligent at doing them. Like whatever it is, like the nailing all the steps and the tension is in sometimes wanting to cut a corner and not being willing to cut a corner, or you're thinking that someone's going over the top and it's too, too rigid a structure or the way to deal with things. And I just can't get enough. And that systemic, you know, pushing through every single barrier is um, I think it's, I think people are at face value. Maybe it's just the pitch. Maybe it's just the log line, but like the cell for this movie must have been to studio, you know, to, to the studios who were going to make it. It's like, oh, we're telling, we're telling the Washington Post Watergate story, and like that as a logline is amazing. We're telling the Boston Globe Catholic Church expose, and they were like, oh, great, we love that, we'll take it. But they're not. I, I would imagine that they're not t saying something to the effect of, oh no, we're going to show a really rigorously like on the ground shoe leather like investigative grind movie where we fastidiously fact check the living daylights out of everything and see this mounting evidence and bring it to bear and in spotlight you at least have something sort of definitive or some sort of definitive closure they sort of do a little bit of merging of um different pieces to show just how impactful it was um but you know you, you sort of get some form of closure there even though it ended up occupying the globe and international media for so many 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 months after the fact um, but yeah, it's, it's, I can't get enough of it, Glenn. I like, I, I find myself, you know, if you, if you see a through line in almost anything that I like that procedure porn of like the, a, a film allowing itself to take the time to fastidiously go through the steps of something, because that's how you demonstrate a character's aptitude or attitude. I love that. I can't get enough. Um, so before before we talk too much more, let's watch this minute. Um, so Absolutely. folks, if you're listening, you're going to be watching one hour and 58 minutes on your dial up to one hour 59. Glenn and I are going to watch the minute together right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Only happens to be the second most important man in this country of conducting a criminal conspiracy from inside the White House. It would be nice if we were right. You double checked your sources. Jesus. Right. Bernstein, are you sure on this story? Absolutely. Woodward? I'm sure. I'm not. Still seems thin. Get another source. How many fucking sources do you think we've got? Are you sure Detroit won't confirm? He won't confirm, I told you that. What about the guy in justice? You can't call him. Why? He's right next to the We have no choice. It's trouble. 20 minutes to deadline. Look, I don't even know if I can get him on the phone.
office? Deputy General's office, please. How many fucking sources do you think we've got, Glenn? I just love, I just, I love that amongst- more. We need more, we need more. I, I love amongst the pressure of that situation of them two just having that little bit of a release moment, like, oh my fucking God, what do I do? So much to talk about just right from the outset. I love the deliberate editing and setups of this scene. Um, this movie does it without, sort of, it's sort of done with an effortlessness that I think needs to be like underlined because I don't think that people realize what it's doing. The whole scene up until this point, the previous minute, this minute, rolling back and forth and back and forth. There's all kind of been a wanna following Bradley and like the camera doing really deliberate, beautiful zoom in, zoom out. It's just awesome showing the different people in the room. And then when he asks them, how sure are you about it? There's a cut and there's a close up. Like, I'm sure, Woodward, looking the opposite direction. I'm sure these two very deliberate cuts back then to the original setup. I'm not. So, and then we rush out into the newsroom again. And I just think that, you know, there's just something so like, so incredibly clever and just so really kind of understated about just like really sure formal delivery of information. When you want your person to tell you how sure they are, just cutting to them to just reinforce it that little bit. And then the casual nature of Bradley going, I'm not, it's just such a great, it's just really terrific command of like cinema, <laughs> basically in the purest way, just how to, how to tell a story, how to reinforce things with the camera. Um, and it can all be on the page, but it's not, those cuts aren't on the page. That's, that's Pacula, that's Willis, that's Redford saying, what's going to make this scene more powerful and show you how high up these guys are getting, being able to have these direct dialogues with the editor. It's just great. Terrific stuff. I loved it. And I think he, more than that, I think Pecula, he earned it. We see so many directors just yeah. going for the first thing <clears throat> to have these big impactful moments. And it's every moment in the film and it loses its resonance. Half the shots in this film are not just wide shots of the Washington Post office. They're from behind a desk and then uh, Woodward Bernstein, they're behind another desk and you're further away. There's these shots as in the final, final shot too, where you don't even maybe notice they're in the shot immediately because they're a little bit further out, but suddenly, Oh, finally we're involved in it. It's like we're in the room. We're having a conversation with them. We're jumping between the two. And and you see, I, I referenced the Pelican Brief earlier. It's a film I like. It's my favorite Christian annotation. It's not, I don't think it's anywhere in the level of this film, but I it's think a, it's good. A peculiar film. A peculiar yes. film. Yeah, it's built for moments. And um, a film that all the way back in the very first episode of the show, and Bill Gerberi, who joined me on that episode, would be so happy that we are talking about it again. Still 119 eps in going, Justice for the Pelican Brief, because it is such a terrific film probably overlooked at the time in the swathe of those adaptions. When you relook at it, the cinematic craft that it's going on, the movie stars, the caliber of what's happening on the screen, such a great, like terrific, like night at the movies. You'd be so satisfied in 2020 or 2019, the last time we were both at proper cinemas together. If that was like, if that was a Wednesday night screening, you'd be like, this is a great movie. This is a great weekend out. Like this is something worth your time and money. Yeah, there's something, there's something sinister about it. I did like The Client. I think this was a lot better. Um, this has a personal impact for me too. I'm a Tulane graduate. And while I didn't have the experience Darby Shaw had from my <laughs> car, and Lepressa and Lover's car blew up in front of me on, in New Orleans, uh, this was something else. But this is the thing. I, the, for that to fly, John Grisham, great. International Assassin by Stanley Tucci, great. Supreme Court Justices, 
gone. That's the thing it has to do. Right. Here it's just, we're going to watch these guys chat to a long list of people. They're going to get it wrong sometimes. They're going to keep going to this dark garage. It's poorly lit. You can't really see who they're talking to. Hmm. No, actually, no, no. That's not what it's about. It's about Watergate. Just, just Watergate. <laughs> just say and, Watergate. That's how we're going to get it sold. Just say Watergate. And I think it was the first, would I be right in saying it was the first big post Watergate film on the subject? Absolutely. Um, it, it is made so blisteringly fast after the events that before the book is even published, when it is just a manuscript in development, Redford has the rights. So they're making it in tandem. The movie is shot in 75 when Nixon's already resigned in 74. It's released in 76. It's competing for Oscars. Incredible. I have such a respect for Redford. He's one of the actors I grew up with as a child and my parents would any Redford film we could watch it. Sneakers is my all time favorite movie. I could, I have and could watch it endlessly. Glenn. And is yeah. Sneakers fan. An yeah. unbelievably huge sneakers fan. Phil Alden Robinson, an absolute terrific film. 1992 desperately underrated. Um, every chance I get, I'm so glad that you said this because it's you, it's me, it's people like Priscilla Page who I always talk to about it on Twitter. Um, yeah, it's just a, a, it is a Swiss watch. It is perfect entertaining. It has a lot of, it has a lot of the hangover of this era and paranoia about it. But you know, uh, the Ocean's Elevens of the world and those things, uh, you know, the, the the contemporary versions are all kind of that sort of similar feeling you see little touches of it and flashes in true lies like James Cameron's they, they're taking some of that sneakers energy with Tom Arnold and the, and the repartee from the vans always looking in while um, Arnold Schwartz. I'm always in the van. Why am I always in the van? <laughs> I love that. It's all that stuff. They're taking that. It's beautiful, but I just think sneakers does it better than anything else. And it's on my shelf and I watch it so much. I watch it all the time. It is one of those, again, one of those movies that are in the long list of films that I ever think about doing um, uh, these kind of projects for it's, it's definitely been one that I've thought about because I just think there are just so few people who talk about how utterly brilliant and entertaining this movie is. It's absurdly underrated. I'm appreciate that it has a, a strange and wonderful following of which wonderfully we both <laughs> are evidently a part. Um, and I love it came to that point where it was the end of the Cold War. They didn't know what to do with yeah. villains and it addressed this. It dealt with very major issues, as you said, a lot of which this film does too. But I like that it's not self-aggrandized in that effect. It just no. makes it, it's prophetic as all the president's men is in major respects. And Rob Redford, he would continue on these themes uh, certainly earlier in his career. Um, I think the last film he made, The Company You Keep, um, touches on um, issues, issues regarding journalism, but... Um, the function of the government and else. And I just love a group heist comedy, which strikes a unique lighthearted tone. And it's dealing seriously with serious issues, but also where everyone has a character arc. And while there's a leader to the gang, it's obviously Martin Bryce, sorry, Martin Bishop. They all um, <laughs> each have their equal space. Um, one of Sidney Poitier's last films, who was um, going back, oh. going full back was supposed to be, was asked to be the president on the West wing and, turned it down that would have been a very different series had he done that but i'm i think it was one of the very last ones he did dan uh, quote obviously the great river phoenix oh uh, it's it's um yeah like there's a there's a few people and i think when you look at phil alden robinson casting and i wonder if this was just an in, I wonder if it was an intention of all of those people at the time that were putting it together is like 
who were the two biggest stars basically in the 50s, 60s? I mean, obviously, Revver went to the 70s, but like Portier is the guy, 50s, 60s, 70s is as big as any movie star in the world, really, like as, as an African American man, like this sort of Titanic figure. Um, he does the last couple around that time, The Jackal, too, uh, with uh, Bruce Willis. Does a couple of those, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Sneakers, sneakers is a gem that just keeps on giving, and I'm so glad that you said you like it because it feels like it's in the wheelhouse of this movie. You know, and when I, when you tonally pair them together, very fun, very different, and I, you know, it's so prophetic of our time too of having weird, conspiratorial slash. It's actually nice to see people who have different political beliefs who are working on the same team, and mucking yeah. around with each other constantly. There is nothing better to me than Dan Aykroyd's mother. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, it's, all and, and it's all happening. It's all and, real. And, 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 and like, you know, claiming that, um, that the CIA calls the, um, Nicaraguan earthquake, um, and what, and, and while Kreese, who is Sidney Portier's character just has to like shake his head and go, I can't, I can't talk to him. I can't talk to him right now. Um, it's just, it's beautiful. And some of, some of it um, comes to circle in that it has, it has that shady role of the CIA and the NSA. Yes. And we see shades of that in all the president's men. I love how all the president's men, it seems films did it before, but it has set the tone for how we deal with just in the minute we spoke about um, 20 minutes, of the deadline, but then also how we depict um, shady government officials and else. I love the newsroom speaking of Aaron Sorkin series. And yeah. every time, um, Sam McQuay character, I can't, I can't remember his name, and he goes to the meet the what we think is an NSA figure. It's always in a parking lot. It's just cinematic language that we are so used to, and this bled into sneakers when we see the opening scene where they're um, trying to do hack the Canadian government. Um, a subsequent se any sequence where we are on the phone to the NSA or else any moment where every moment in that wonderful scene in Ben Kingsley's um mega fortress with the silent <laughs> room which looks like supposed to be a toy factory and just that like i like that in this in all the president's men we feel what deep throat says you don't know how far this goes you're only on the edges of this you're supposed to go from the edges in and sneakers i feel does that it's these guys who are scrappy who are on the outskirts, who are either kicked out or the intelligence community want nothing to do with them and they are dragged in and the intelligence community have to reckon with them and they go further and further. And how far it goes, obviously they find out that the box is of very real consequence and suddenly they have to navigate um, this, these murky depths, which are so abstract and out there and unwieldy to us. And I love that that spirit carried through for the presence, I mean, not just so many films, but to wonder films like see, because it seems Redford has just made this a consistently interesting part of his career. Yeah. I think he's, he's a guy who's been politically engaged his entire life and it's just sort of unashamed about it. And I think that that, that can, can carry through. And, you know, I think anyone who, anyone who has an idea that their art isn't um, political in any sort of way is just like, is a mug. Like it's just basically because your art expresses your political values or re reinforces, you know, the political values of the time. If, if it's just sort of doing it blindly or, you know, uh, trying to sell toys, um, like some of the big franchises just to basically do it to become a pure commercial endeavor. Um, but toy company, my ass. <laughs> basically, basically. Um, but the, the, the best, the best, uh, I think, I think movies like, all the president's men and some of the shows and the films that we've been talking about, you know, you, you start out with, 
it's like a real dichotomy. It's some of the sources who work for the FBI just look like regular or, or, or phone companies or things like that, or people who are talking about wiretapping. They just look like any corporate person. And, you know, I think in another great example, and it's happened on, strangely enough, happened on a bloody commercial TV show, which I think is sort of unfathomable at the time, but there's a terrific series called The Good Wife. And, you know, they have depictions of the NSA hacking phones and finding out information about people that are in their law firms and relationships because of people cheating, et cetera. And it's just a regular office. Like it's just a regular office where people look like they could be working in any corporate team and they're just like listening to everything. And, and I think that these movies and, and, and these things that make real like these structures, you know, especially right in, in all the president's men, it's talking about the FBI and things like that. Um, but they're very real people who are just doing a job and they're going to work every day and they feel like they're, meant, they feel like they're doing the right thing. And so I think in, in this moment right now, as they're chasing off to get these sources, um, it's really making it real of like how many people do you think that we've been able to cultivate on this subject with such high stakes are just around for us to call. Like we'll just answer the phone. will give us an answer in 20 minutes and rush out to do this. Like how many people, because it's, it's an insanely difficult prospect to think of because in, you know, even in the, like the more lighthearted entertainments of sneakers, it's like it, the stakes are so high that it's incredible that you would get someone that, you know, even someone on the other side, you know, in a Cold War context, um, like Nicholas, um, uh, uh, Marty Bryce's uh, friend and and sort of former Russian spy, now cultural attache would say, it's like that relationship is so unique because of so many years of having it. And so the idea that those people just come around who are willing to help you seems crazy. And so that's what I also love about this scene. There's a, there's a stark reality of like, if you don't have it, you don't have it. And sometimes you just don't have the sources to back it up. So we just need to explore another thing. And then there's the desperation aspect of like, you've gone to a source, you've already exhausted 500 times before. And that's the great element of this movie that we just love and love and love and will keep loving is you just go back to them that one more time and say, I have all this information, please go on the record. Give me a confirmation like that. I've had it confirmed. I won't use your name or use where you're from. And that's the setup we're getting into we've had all of the slow pace, the slow builds. And now we're really in the business end of this movie. And uh, this is just a, such a dynamic scene and great. And I, I, I love watching, you know, Carl Bernstein having to hover outside editor's rooms to try and get a better story to work on than the one that he's currently meant to have already filed um, compared to this scene, you know, basically two hours into this movie, which is um, just so dynamic and so there and they're right on the knife's edge of like the biggest part of this story. I don't think the scene would have worked if they hadn't had all these great sequences, not just going up to all these houses, but meeting the person who's obviously nervous. Um, uh, you know, he's got a young family. He's, he's about to have a child. We're seeing this background. People very clearly, I'm in, I'm out of this. I'm concerned for legitimate reason. People in just normal, non-flashy apartments. And I think a lot of the time when people think of these Beckham with the FBI or else, they think of how Holbrook um, kind of obscured and that's not what it's like. I, to go back to sneakers, there's a scene where the fellow says, where with the Russian attache, is this gun loaded? He's very smooth, um, very refined, very set back. And I think that's what happens people see the FBI or the CIA. But no, it's probably more akin to just James L. Jones. It's like, I can't believe this. And that crew <laughs> is coming in at the end of the movie. And it worked. I liked that it demystified these people. I actually, the first time I watched this film, I didn't know who 
deep throat was. There was an yeah. air, air of mystery about it. And subsequently, obviously, um, the deputy FBI director came forward mm-hmm. and it gives it a little, it's a little bit different watching uh, the film. Isn't it, ama- isn't it amazing though, that at the time that they made this, Deep Throat was a source. It was a yeah. source. And the air of the people saying, you know, oh, this is just fake. It's a movie device. And then Woodward saying, no, there is a, there is a deep throat. He was a source on our story. Is it a deep background? And I, I will never reveal his identity until he's dead. And then like decades, decades and decades and decades later, like the real Mark felt passes away. We find out that he was like third in charge in the FBI. And he was the guy who was in that car park talking to Bob Woodward and giving him these story leads to, to keep going. And yeah, it's just an insane thing of like he himself as a figure um, you know, as wild and crazy as that is, it's like, no, this was a guy that, you know, it was draped in mystery from the, the individuals in the movie and the movie expressed him draped in mystery and it become like a, a formidable, like figure in history from then on. And in, and in our cultural shorthand, cause he's in the X-Files, he's Smithers in the Simpsons. He's, 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 yes, you know, that's so right. that, oh, kids, are you dumb? It's like, oh, there's <laughs> Right. So, oh no. Oh no. Can you at least give me a ride home? You know, like that's like, that's, this is how we know what it's like to be a, a, a an insider, essentially someone who is willing to go on the record um, at, at the risk of losing their job, potentially, you know, at the, in the worst possible stakes, losing their life, all those things. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's really, it's really crazy. And then, you know, I love even walking out. It's one of the first times, you know, um, they're sort of joked about him, but like actually getting him to go on the record here, we've seen Deep Throat give him little bits of information, but actually going, would Deep Throat go on it? Like, and, and Bernstein. We need it. We need it now. We're done with this gaming. We want it. We need it. And so it does, it does give that kind of good foreshadowing energy later where you see Woodward's energy really spike with deep throat, you know, saying like, Fuck, I'm sick of your chicken shit games, which I'm looking forward to talking about. Um, but it's, it's, it's just such a fascinating energy that you start to see building up here and start to see the urgency of their pursuit. And it's, it's great. It's a really terrific scene. This whole sequence has been great. I for, you, you really forget. And I'm the guy who's like doing the show every day. It's like, you genuinely forget how quick and how frenetic and just how many amazing moments within scenes and great scenes that all happen that you've just been having this huge kind of what feels like a glacial but very mesmerizing momentum for the whole movie and then now it's just like hell for leather like the last 20 or so minutes of this movie is just unrelenting and all the way you know i think the you know the sort of pre-credits coda that slow build that kind of gives you the final moments of this movie is actually a bit of a relief it's a reprieve from like now this like 20 minutes of craziness that you see where it's just non-stop every single second something great is happening on screen i remember watching this for the first time and I think nowadays, certainly there are newspapers being printed every day, but there is less of, in many respects, a stringent deadline. This needs to be done now because you physically have to get the ink to the printer. The post handled this so well. It's so intrinsic to an audience of a certain age or who watches this at a certain time. That's gone now. And watching this, I still felt that tension. Yes. I didn't need to know that it needed to be at 11 p.m. It's like 20 minutes to the deadline it's out and everyone's had a similar moment that they can relate to in their life where this it's crunch time. This is happening. And I love the tension of them calling up all these individuals and they articulated it quite explicitly earlier. We need someone to speak and then more and others will. No one wants to be the person who is 
Humphrey Bogart, Rick would say, puts their neck on the line. <laughs> yes. And and we're seeing this, we have seen this play out over the past few years with the Trump administration. No one's wanted to be the person who goes out there. There needs to be a critical mass. Um, certainly hiking back, so again, early conversation, there doesn't need to be a critical mass as we speak of Republicans who are um, congratulating Biden. I'm um, Certainly there may be more at this moment. It's an ebb. And that captures that moment of, as Stephen Colbert said last night, this is when you stand up. There are a number of people I'm sure who, looking back, um, including Mark Felt, are very happy that they played that function. Others who were stood by the sidelines of history, and I know Woodward articulates this. And again, I'm speaking to, I was so struck by, it's more evident in the book, the policy differences that we have a Democrat and a Republican working on the story together. I know Woodward mentions at one point in the movie, but it's such a great thing that it just happened. So it's said so casually, and it is of huge consequence because it is important. I'm Republican. I care about this party. Uh, this is and this, this is what I want. And others articulate this, even though it is the lady they spoke to by accident. Others saying, "No, this is not <laughs> how I want the Republican Party to be. This is not the party that. This is not my party." Others we've seen articulate that in the past few days. Certainly, more and more as they've uh, moved further away from Trump. McCain certainly articulated um, rhetoric to this to great about this, of this nature to great effect. And I love that all these. Things, all these moments in the film come to fulcrum here where we have to make a decision and we see it, we see it backfire a little. I love that the film didn't need to be a four hour film or didn't need to condense the whole story, the whole book to two hours. It essentially only deals with half of the book. Yeah. There's, a, there's some integrity because everyone knows the story, but there's integrity in the storytelling that they didn't feel the need to, the, the final sequence, the final couple of minutes, which I know you'll get on to talk about in a little while, <laughs> tells it all. Um, Pecula had that integrity of storytelling. I such, have such respect for him and the cast and the crew for that. Yeah, the, I think that that's a perfect way to end because, you know, I, I, I've i talked to many guests on this show and I, I can't remember exactly who paraphrased it this way, but sometimes history is bigger than the end of a movie. Like the bookends of history are way more powerful than any ending that you can possibly conjure. Um, and so, yeah, the integrity of going, Goldman crafting this script and going, this is where the story is. And then just, trusting obviously an American public who was so immersed with everything that had happened to not treat them like idiots, but that choice aging, like the best possible vintage of wine, like you could ever hope for it. It's like, it just ages and it's better and it's smarter. And it's like, what can you learn when you're making any movie of, of, of any time period of any period play or anything that you're trying to do that actually has that level of integrity of like, I'm not going to treat these people like they're idiots. I'm going to show them what it took to do this investigation. And this is where it landed for better or worse. Um, and the movie ends with Richard Nixon being sworn in for his second term, um, which was going to be a great topic of conversation if Trump was elected for his second term, but he, he wasn't even elected for that. Wasn't I, we don't know. I feel, I, I feel positive. I feel hopefully not unjustifiably confident, but we could be seeing a situation in the next few months where he doesn't see transition so easily. We may be seeing a film 20 years from now, as you said earlier, where at this moment, where what is Trump going to do? And it's going to be a fait accompli for audiences. They will know that history, but I feel a good film like this will show the sort of tension that, we're feeling today and we've halted the past few days and as we sat there only 90 percent in nevada 90 percent in georgia <laughs> refreshing and just like no no ap tell me more and even when it's 99 percent um 
Clark County, come on, you can do this. You can do this. I'm looking at, I know more about the geography of uh, Wisconsin than I ever thought I would. Well, and, look, and this is what we can hope. You're, you're a guy, you can start calling now, cold calling your friends in Washington. I really want all of our American movie friends in the next Australian election to be really hanging, really hanging on all of the different regions of Queensland um, voting. I really want to, you know, pronounce really, even the narrow guys. Come on. <laughs> come on. I really want them hanging. Um, on every single, I just, I, I really want some hot takes um, about about when Eden Monaro doesn't go to, to labor. Um, I really want that. So we just need to make that happen. Glenn, thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's been really fun and really um, fun. So great to revisit this film. It's so great to have you. And uh, if, if for anything else, another true believer in sneakers um has been found ladies and gentlemen um you'll see in the show notes you'll hear in my outro where to find glenn again but uh look thank you so much again man it, it's uh, it's awesome to chat that's been fantastic have a great night and uh look, we'll follow the news excitingly over the next few days and and the final few minutes of the show i'm keen to see how uh different commentators and others uh, see play out what is again like we've seen he had an amazing two hours he's earned these last 20 frenetic minutes Oh, what a lovely guy Glenn is. That was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Glenn, for being a part of the show. If you want to follow Glenn, it's at Glenn Falkenstein on Twitter, which is G-L-E-N-F-A-L-K-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. Um, you can check out his website, Falcon Screen. So it's just Falcon, F-A-L-K-E-N, screen, the word screen. Um, and if you go to any of your you know preferred podcasting applications, applications you can find film fight club which is weekly uh podcast for 2ser we're both alums of 2ser where i used to do gaggle of geeks with the awesome sophie lie glenn is great always good to find another sneakers fan guys thank you so much for listening to all the president's minutes and everything we're doing on one heat minute productions we have some amazing guests coming up for you thank you for coming on this journey with us it's just been a thrill um if you want to follow me it's one blake minute on uh twitter and instagram if you want to follow the show it's at atpm pod on twitter if you can help us out there is a donate link if you want to do a one-off donation um to help out with the show and our productions that are coming up or become a patron get a free weekly podcast rum and rant uh, on our one heat minute patreon you can find that at patreon forward slash one heat minute we'll catch you on another episode of all the president's minutes very soon